Week 7 is in the books for the NFL season, and Inside the Pylon, the podcast, is on the scene in order to break down all of last weekend's action as well as get you caught up on what to expect in the upcoming weekend. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield in studio as always. Mark, how are we today? Doing well, my friend. How are you? How are you? Doing well. It was. Uh, we had it said going into last weekend that it was arguably the weakest slate of NFL games for the season, with only the Jets-Patriots being a matchup of two teams with winning records. And I, I don't know if I should say this weekend didn't disappoint because it did disappoint, but it didn't disappoint. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I think from where I sit, the biggest news of last week was easily – Adele dropping that fire new single, Hello, off her upcoming new album. You pre-ordered that one yet, Chuck? Uh, I pre-ordered it straight to the dumpster out behind my... Oh, come on. I, I love Adele's voice. I think she is an incredibly talented woman. I also think that... And, and look, maybe I've just heard that, that one song with the piano too many times, the one about how someone left her and, and this and that... But I just feel like she's kind of gotten stuck on a downer for like the last five or six years of her life, and she needs to do something different. I think you're dead wrong on this one, man. I would listen to her sing the phone book. Her well, voice is that incredible. But I mean, I, the, look, the phone I like book would single, be an improvement. I, like I think single, that would be happy. Great. I would love the phone book, but it's that that's that's kind of neutral. But I I just I need a little more. I need a little more up from her sometimes because it's it's easy to get down in this world where you have to watch a matchup between you know the the Jaguars and the Bills or between the Saints and the Colts. I need something to lift me up from that. Fair enough. I guess I guess we should talk football, huh? We are inside the pylon. We will chat football. So let's start with a matchup uh, in the NFC, and this is one that I had been looking at really just to see if this Minnesota Vikings team was for real. They came into the game at 3-2. and two. Lions obviously not having a good season, but it's a game that you wanted to see the Vikings take care of on the road in the division, and they did come through in that respect. They did, and you know, I think what we're starting to see from Minnesota is, you know, continued development from Teddy Bridgewater at the quarterback position. I think they've got some new, some exciting weapons. I'm really, the more I see of Stephon Diggs, the more I think there is to like with him as a receiver. I think he's, you know, now three weeks into his career because he didn't even see any action until a couple weeks ago. He's put up some good numbers for them. I love what he does from a change of direction standpoint. You know, I think the Vikings they look. Like they're coming together in a nice little solid team. Now, when we talk about Teddy Bridgewater, he's a guy that I know you looked at last year, uh, profiling him during his rookie season. Have you seen him made any any type of make any type of jump as we have headed into really just about halfway done with this season now? I don't know if it's so much as a jump, or if it's just that he was. You know, he fell a little bit in the draft as he was going through the evaluation process. There was there was a time when people thought he might have been the first quarterback selected, and he fell to the end of the first round. Where Minnesota actually, I think they traded back into the first round to get him. Um, so I think, you know, from that standpoint, you know, maybe he was this he was the player we thought he was going to be all along, and we're just kind of seeing it really progress here now. He's in his second year. He's doing a lot in terms of getting the ball around the different receivers. Throws a nice catchable ball. He's an athletic player as well. So I think that we're just finally seeing what people initially expected when they first looked at Bridgewater before he fell a bit. From a technique perspective, where do you rate him at this point? Is he a guy who is always fundamentally sound? Does he occasionally slip into bad habits still? Where does he stand? 
I mean, I think all quarterbacks, especially younger quarterbacks, they, they tend to, you know, slip up a little bit because, you know, when you're doing things when you're younger and you're head and shoulders above every other player on the field, say in high school or maybe even college, you can get away with things. You can get away with a flaw such as a hit step or maybe a wind up to your motion. The NFL is a great equalizer in that sense. But sometimes it's muscle memory. You revert to throwing off your back foot or something like that when you're under pressure. But I think for the most part, he does a fairly good job. And mechanically speaking, like I said, it throws a nice catchable ball. Um, somebody I'm excited to watch going forward. Yeah, and, and one of my questions heading into the last couple weeks has been, can the Vikings give Bridgewater enough weapons in the passing game because you look at what's out there for him right now and look you've got a guy like Mike Wallace who had you know started off his NFL career looking like he was going to be the next big thing and and while he's become a a capable receiver I think the last couple years with the Dolphins certainly showed that he probably wasn't up to being a number one receiver on a team and I look at a guy like Bridgewater, he's got a great running back in Peterson, and I think the emergence of Diggs helps to say, okay, we may be able to build an offense around these three players now. Right, and another name to add to that mix is somebody that Dan Hatman talked about in his season preview articles, and that's tight end Kyle Rudolph, who brings a nice sort of security blanket element to that offense. He's not obviously not as talented as, say, a Rob Gronkowski or some of the other tight ends in this league, but he has a good relationship with Bridgewater on the field. They seem to know where each other is on every single play. Bridgewater often does a good job of finding him in you know, clutch situations, third downs, and so. So I think with that little nucleus of skill players, they've got something to build on. Yeah, and definitely at 4-2 and two right now, uh, you know, you look at where they sit in the standings as we go through the uh, the seventh week of the season. They're behind the Packers in the NFC North, but certainly in the in the hunt for a playoff spot in the NFC at this point. And I think it could be a team. It, I hadn't really expected too much out of them at the outset of this year, just because I, I figured they didn't have enough offensive weapons. They probably still had a year to go. But you look at where they sit at this point. And they're sitting in that final playoff spot in the NFC, just ahead of the St. Louis Rams and uh, Washington. And you figure, look, it might be a good year for them to get some early playoff experience for some of these young guys and build on that as they head into 2016. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, getting into the playoffs would be big for them, give them a little exposure towards the bright lights of the postseason and see if they can build on that for next year. Yeah, let's, let's turn back to the AFC now. And a team that, kind of in a similar quick pivot here, has done a 180 in a span of about three weeks. The Miami Dolphins uh, had lost in their fourth game of the season to the Jets, 27-14. to Changed the coach around. Actually, they changed the coach around just before that, after that loss to the Bills. But the last two weeks, beating the Titans 38-10, to beating the Texans 44-26, to You've watched the film on a couple of these recent games here. How much of it is due to an actual shift in what Miami's doing and how they're playing as opposed to the level of competition they're facing? Yeah, I I think there's a lot to be said about it coming from the fact that they got two AFC South opponents in back-to-back weeks. Um, you know, maybe the AFC South might be kind of a, you know, a nice little way to pad the resume a bit right now. None of the teams in that division has a winning record. Um, so they get, you know, the Titans and the Texans. And looking at the film from that Houston game, it wasn't that Miami really did anything new or spectacular. They just ran their offense and just made plays. And Houston 
missed tackles. They got beat on, you know, plays. There was the first touchdown pass of the game. It was just a simple backside slant. It was a nicely designed play where Miami showed trips to the right. They sent the running back in deep motion. Obviously, the defense is thinking potential screen to that side. Everybody kind of flows to that side of the field and away from the backside screen. Just a simple five-yard route, and the receiver takes it for 50 yards or so for a touchdown. A running back screen that goes nearly goes 54 yards for a touchdown. They even a simple inside zone run for an 85-yard touchdown with a couple of missed tackles. So I think that you know the past two wins for Miami, it's nice for them to you know you have the interim coach that comes in. You got two wins now, but they get a big test this Thursday night tonight actually against the Patriots. Yeah, they definitely do, and that's going to be a big one to see if Miami can turn the corner. And look, against the Patriots at home, we know that's a tough road for a a Miami team. Miami generally does not do particularly well at Foxborough to begin with. So I think in this case, much like the Jets showed last week where they showed up, they they put a great effort in and came up just short at the end. I think you simply want to see them be competitive there and maybe live to fight another day and take on the Patriots again at home in December. So that's what I'm looking for uh, out of that game. But we are going to now head back to Week 7 and highlight our favorite portion of the week, as always, the Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week. And, Mark, this is, I know, your favorite segment, so take it away. Sure, that's right, my friend. The Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week brought to you by NASA. Millions of moving parts built by the lowest bidder. And this week we're... Like you said, across the pond, we're looking at that Jacksonville-Buffalo game. Haven't had a chance to talk a lot about what the Jacksonville Jaguars have done on offense. But, you know, they got out to an early lead, and then Buffalo stormed back, and Jacksonville was trailing late and got the ball of just over five minutes remaining in the game, down four, and Blake Bortles took them on a nice little drive. And then they faced a second and five at the Buffalo 31 ran a little play-action play, and because of some pressure on the edge, Bortles actually climbs the pocket a bit before escaping out to his left, and he has a chance, Chuck, to run for the first down here, but rather than tuck it and just pick up the yards on the ground, he does a great job of keeping his eyes downfield. He spots Alan Hearns crossing the field on a deep crossing route in the scramble drill here and does a great job mechanically, I think, of getting that up shoulder and the upper body turn to get some torque on the throw. Drops the ball downfield for Hearns, who makes a great diving catch and crashes to the ground inside the pylon for the game-winning touchdown. It was a great play. What did you think when you saw this? Well, I I kind of agree with you in in terms of you mentioned he, he keeps his eyes up throughout the entire play. He's scanning the field. And for me at least, and and I'm someone who's been critical of Bortles throughout this season, even earlier that game, I remember talking to someone saying, wow, Bortles really does not look good. But that play in particular, it stood out to me because I said, if you go back in time a year or so, Bortles doesn't make that play, I don't think. And, And I think it shows some of the maturation that we are starting to see from him. I still need to see more consistency because when I look at the completion percentage and some of the throws that he's missing, I don't see it on a consistent basis. And and maybe you can talk to me about why that is. That I don't know if it's mental, physical, I don't know what it is. But this play, I know that he was able to really get everything moving in the direction he needed and accomplish really what he set out to do here. Right, and the reason why I like this play from a quarterback evaluation standpoint is it does show, you know, great maturation at the quarterback position when a quarterback is on the move especially in a, on a play like this where he has the first down he can easily 
you know, there's only one defender that's in any position to stop him from making the first down, and that's Nigel Bradham, who's a linebacker. He's in underneath coverage, but he has a receiver to his left. So he's in a bit of a bind. Bortles can easily tuck this and run. But rather than doing that, he shows the awareness to keep his eyes downfield, which is a tough thing to quarter, for young quarterbacks to do. Sometimes when those feet get moving and you've got a first down that you can easily get, you're just thinking, oh, let's get the first down and keep the chains moving. But instead, he lets the play develop, has the vision to find Hearns coming across the field, and then follows through with a precision mechanical throw. It would have been easy for him to just try to flip this ball downfield. And as a matter of fact, E.J. Emanuel faced a similar play in this game and showed poor mechanics. But here, Boros gets that good shoulder turn, generates the torque necessary to make that throw. I just think it's a sign of continued development from him at the QB position. And keep in mind, Mark, the good news for Jaguars fans is that after this win, they're only one game out of a playoff spot in the AFC South at two and five. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And I mean, if you think about, you know, that division right now, I mean, look at, you know, you got the Colts obviously at three and four, but they're going to Carolina this week. I mean, the Texans, that team looks to be in, you know, in bad shape. I mean, not only the on the field product, but now we're hearing reports this week about, you know, Bill O'Brien being vetoed by ownership when he wanted to cut yep. Ryan Mallett. I mean, that team doesn't seem to be headed anywhere good right now. So, I mean, even though, yeah, like you said, you know, they're, you know, only the two wins, they're not in bad shape in that division. <laughs> two and five and not in bad shape. It is outstanding. And here to talk more about one of the teams that you just mentioned, the Indianapolis Colts, we are joined by Alex Kirby, one of my favorite followers on Twitter. You can follow him at Alex J. Kirby. And, Alex, I know you wanted to talk Colts with us, but welcome in. Hey guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's let's talk a little bit about this Colts team because in the last couple of weeks we've seen them uh, make a couple critical errors on special teams that I pointed out. But what have you seen in general from them? I mean, how bad has it been for Indy here? Well, the thing about the Colts is that they have been a team that has been coasting way above uh, the law of averages for the past two years uh, up until this recently. You know, they've got six guaranteed wins on their schedule, basically, because, you know, you just mentioned the Jags are 2-5 and five and somehow still in the playoff race right now, just being in that division. Um, but they, they have had the luxury of the rest of their division just not being able to keep up with them, for whatever reason that might be. I'm not sure. Um, so they've been able to get away with a lot of flexible moves. And I've been saying it for uh, a couple years now, and I and – I, I finally, I just felt like this was going to be the year when things came a little bit further back to earth, if you will. And, and so far, that that's it looks like that's what happened. Yeah, and, and in particular, when you look at this team, do you think that the biggest errors are coming off the field in terms of personnel selection? Is it on the field in terms of the scheme they're running? Where do you feel the biggest problems are? I think it's a, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, I think my biggest problem has been with um, just put all, put all, put aside all, all the personnel moves. Uh, my biggest problem was who they decided to replace Bruce Arians with. And I understand that the situation that they were put in with, with Chuck Pagano a couple of years ago and his illness, you know, there's really nothing you can do about that. Um, and so obviously Arians was put into that role and he showed exactly what he could do as a head coach, which is why he's in Arizona. Um, but, you know, the story was they were going to bring in Pep Hamilton as Andrew Luck's college offensive coordinator, 
You know, they obviously had history together. It was going to be a lot of chemistry. It was going to pay off. And, and I never understood that at all because you, you bring in a guy with a totally different offensive philosophy from the guy who just led you to the playoffs with Andrew Luck's rookie year. Uh, time, time and time again, this team just doesn't seem to have any type of unifying philosophy. And to Pagano's, to be fair to Pagano, uh, I, I believe that you know he, Pep wasn't his first choice. It looked like this was probably something that came from on high from Grigson and, and Ursay maybe. So there, there's some of that, but it, it's just there doesn't seem to be any long-term vision of what this team is supposed to look like, other than we're going to sign a, a bunch of guys who have already shown they can be effective in the league, but not really give them any type of uh, blocking up front. Uh, as Obviously, the offensive line is, is a huge problem in Indianapolis right now. But it, there, there are problems all around is what I'm saying. It, just, it has not looked like a complete football team or anything re- resembling a complete football team for a long time. Yeah, and, and I look at this from the perspective of you have Andrew Luck here who is – uh, in you know, essentially entering the prime of his career, or what should be the prime of his career, at age 26 right now, and you don't really have a, a, a capable offense around him. Both in terms of you've got a line that has been shaky at times. You have some old running backs, some old receivers. You don't really have a, a, a true number one in there. And and you sit there and you say, how are you wasting the talent of this guy? It just it doesn't make sense to me. Well, yeah, I'm with you 100 percent there. The, the thing is that this Colts team. And maybe not so much the team as, as the fan base. I, I have bigger problems with the fan base, honestly, than I do with the, with the team sometimes because I think this, this city has tricked itself into thinking that they had a Super Bowl contender this year, which was not the case. I mean, you can look, if, if you're bored enough, you can go scroll back to my week one NFL tweets before anybody played any games, and I said the same thing. I said, this is not a Super Bowl contender. And they're not, they are going to be very mediocre, and it's likely that Chuck Pagano is going to be gone after this year because they – as you said, Andrew Luck is in the prime of his career, and time and time again, even after giving this new regime so much time, uh, we've seen Andrew Luck having to basically carry the team on his back, despite you know winning in spite of poor coaching, poor personnel decisions. Uh, it just time and time again, I know people are going to tell me the last couple of years the Colts have had great statistical offenses, but I know a mediocre offense when I see one, and that's exactly what Indianapolis has had for a long time now. Alex, looking at the other side of the ball, one of the issues, obviously, in the wake of that AFC Championship game loss to the Patriots was the defense, specifically the run defense. Now, Indianapolis went out and they addressed wide receiver early in the draft where they drafted Philip Dorsett. They got some guys later in the draft in the middle rounds. But what are you seeing from this Colts defense that has you concerned about them going forward? Well, I think the along with the defense, uh, mainly just the team as a whole. I, I, I don't want to focus too much on defense, but I think it's I think it's a team wide problem. They just got to start better. Um, you know, you saw them. I think it was a twenty seven nothing deficit that they gave up to the to the Saints on Sunday, um, and that's been a theme time and time again. Is, is this team just has not started well? And then you get into the third and fourth quarters, and you're feeling you're feeling comfortable. You're, you're seeing maybe another comeback, which Andrew Luck has had a lot of those early on in his career, but you have to ask, ask yourself why. Uh, in this new era of Colts football, why has Andrew Luck had to bring this team back uh, from so many deficits? And that's got to be one of the big reasons, because the defense, you know, they're probably talented enough to be somewhere above average, middle of the pack defense, good enough to get the job done when you've got a complimentary offense around them. But this team as a whole just has not competed 
from the opening kickoff for, for whatever reason. I, I don't know what that is, but that's been a big problem. Alex, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and kind of come at you from left field with a question here. You and I actually chatted a couple weeks back about the Battle of Gettysburg and Colonel Joshua Chamberlain on the 20th Maine. And for those of you that skipped history class, this was the second day of battle at the Battle of Gettysburg. And Colonel Chamberlain was in charge of the 20th Maine, holding the extreme left flank of the Union position on Little Round Top. And he gave the order to charge down the hill. Thinking about that, what coach, what football coach in your mind would give such a bold decision, give such a bold play call like that? You know, wow, that is out of left field. You're not kidding. Um, (laughs) I I would have to say, I love the question, though. I I would have to say right now the the guy that fits that that personality tab would probably have to be Bruce Arians. I think, you know, everything you read about him, everything you hear about him from, from guys who have played for him and worked with him, He's that guy. He's he's aggressive. He knows exact. He has a very specific philosophy of what he wants to get done, and he goes after it. And there's not a doubt in his mind that it's the right way to do things. So he's he's brash. Maybe you can call him a little bit arrogant, um, but he has consistently produced time and time again with, you know, not always the best uh, personnel on offense. So that that would be my that would be my guy. I think. Very good, Alex. I know we have to uh, head into our next segment. I know you've got a couple books out, though. Uh, what's the What's the best way for someone to go about finding those and uh, picking them up if they're interested? Uh, thanks for the shout-out. You can just go to alexkirbyfootball.com, and that'll actually uh, redirect to amazon.com and my author page and everything I have uh, you can find there. Perfect. Well, Alex, appreciate the time, and uh, we'll check in with you later on this season, and uh, maybe we'll move over to uh, do a little Revolutionary War in our uh, in our next time we have you on, all right? Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. All right, Alex Kirby there, and again, you can follow him on Twitter at Alex J Kirby. And Mark, one other thing that I was just looking at just briefly is you look at the next three three games on the Colts schedule: Carolina at Carolina, Denver at home, and then at the Falcons. I mean, this could be a team that's three and seven heading into the last five games of the season. Yeah, I mean that's that's a. That's a tough three-game slate for them. I mean, it starts, you know, Monday night where they have to make a trip out to Carolina. Um, either they write the ship here or they're thinking about the draft. I mean, we'll know in three weeks. Yep, yep, absolutely. So let's uh, spin over to talk about the Inside the Pylon glossary. For those of you listening, if you haven't checked it out previously, it is that glossary tab pretty much right in the center of the page, right near the top, right underneath our logo. It is one of the things we are most proud of in that it is a fully annotated with full media, uh, full descriptions of just about any term we have in there. We're adding just about uh, five or six terms a week. We're now up over 60 terms. And if you're looking to learn anything basic about football, anything complicated about, about football, it is a great place to start. And, Mark, I know that you had made reference to uh, the term scramble drill a little bit earlier on when we were talking about Blake Bortles, and it probably makes sense to cover that and make sure everyone knows exactly what it is. Right, and, you know, I love what we're doing with the the glossary with our friends over at the Scouting Academy to put this together. In terms of the scramble drill, what you're actually talking about, it's a reference to the things that an offense does in practice. You know, you hear about football, especially when you talk about the Patriots and situational awareness. You know, this is a drill that offenses will run. They'll call a play in practice. There won't be defenders out there, or sometimes you'll have it in seven-on-seven where the quarterback will drop back, receivers will run their routes, and then the coach will instruct the quarterback to roll left or right, and the receivers have to adjust their routes 
accordingly to maintain a relationship with their quarterback and to find some open space in the field. The way it's typically done is one receiver, as the quarterback rolls, will break vertically. Others will kind of flood the zones towards that sideline as the quarterback moves either to the left or the right. That's the scramble drill, and you'll hear it on Sundays, on Saturdays, when you see, like we saw with this Blake Borders play, Borders breaks the pocket, starts moving towards the left sideline. The tight end, Mercedes Lewis, he's running an out route. He sees Bortles flow towards his sideline. He then breaks vertically. Hearns is running a deep crossing pattern. As he sees Bortles move towards the sideline, he simply continues his run towards that front corner of the end zone. And, and Mark, you mentioned that this is something that's practiced in terms of receivers will break off routes and move into areas of the field in order to get open for the quarterback as he scrambles. Is that something that is coordinated uh, pre-snapper based on the alignment, or is that pretty much if you see someone going to an area, you pick a different one to go to? It's, it's typically determined by where you are on your pass play to begin with. So if, you know, on the play that we just had where Lewis was running an out route towards that sideline, he then knows that he has to break vertically because you can't just stay there because the defenders are going to flow towards your side of the field. You know, this is like we saw in the uh, Jets-Patriots game last year. Danny Amendola was running an out route. Brady breaks the pocket, rolls to the left. Amendola then breaks vertically. So that's one way that it works. And then when you're coming from the other side of the field, you continue across and try to flood the zones. If you're a deep receiver on a crossing route, you stay at a depth. If you're a shallow receiver, you stay in the flat, but just try to get into the quarterback's line of sight so he knows he has targets to find downfield. Very good. Well, we're now going to move to our second guest, who is Dave Archibald from InsideThePylon.com, our very own Dave Archibald, actually. And Dave, appreciate you coming on today. How's everything going? Going great. Great to be back on. Absolutely. And uh, we've been talking quite a bit uh, about AFC South football, which has been somewhat miserable to deal with, actually. So I'm glad that we have you uh, you on so that we can move over to uh, something a little bit more positive. Or may- maybe it isn't, because to be honest, I-, I haven't even looked at the full article yet. But you've been doing this, this series on uh, investment that's made by front offices into various positions. And so I think a good place to start is just talking about the series that you've been doing and, and what you've been trying to get out of it. Sure. So um, teams really have two kinds of capital to invest to build their team. So obviously cap space is one, you know, the dollars that are going to players. uh, And the other is the draft picks that teams have. So what I've tried to do is look at both the salaries and the draft picks. And I'm using the uh, old Jimmy Johnson draft value chart to quantify, you know, how much how much teams are investing in draft picks and look at different positions and different teams and how the patterns of investment play out. So as you start to take a look at offensive lines, what are some of the major overarching trends that you've seen in general from teams? Well, one of the things that was interesting is uh, left tackle, no surprise that the uh, that's the premium position, both in terms of money where the average salary is almost double the next and in terms of draft picks where it's about 60 percent higher um other than that the what i found interesting was how uniform the rest of the offensive line positions were i kind of thought right tackle would be the 
number two position, but it, it wasn't really uh, right guard ended up being a position that a lot of teams have used high draft picks on, although that was the lowest money position. So kind of a uh, counterbalancing force there. If teams are spending money, they're using less draft picks. Did you do any research into whether or not increased spending on certain positions translated into success, or is that kind of the next step in where you're going? Well, it's, it's hard to quantify that because we don't have great metrics for offensive line play, but I did relate. Um, I divide all the uh, every team into one of four quadrants, whether they were above average in money, draft picks, both or neither. And I uh, correlated those to football outsiders statistics that they use to measure offensive line performance, which are adjusted line yards, which measures the running game, and adjusted sack rate, which measures the passing game. And what I found was the teams that spent more money, they saw a better adjusted sack rate. So they do a better job protecting the quarterback, but there was no uh there was no better adjusted line yards. In fact, if anything, the, the teams that spent less money saw a little better performance in adjusted line yards. But again, I mean, we're dealing with imperfect metrics here, so I think it's hard to draw a strong conclusion from this. Dave, you also wrote a similar piece on running back investment, and I believe you found something similar in that the teams that spent more capital, both in terms of draft picks and salary cap money, were actually getting less results from the running back position. Is that something that you found? Do you think that's going to be the same for other positions as you continue this series? Well, I think one of the things that um, makes it difficult is sometimes investment is a reaction to what's happening. So, you know, if you look at the Rams, they're they're using a top 10 pick on Todd Gurley because they weren't happy with what they were getting out of running back. So then you end up with kind of an inverse correlation there where, um, you know, some of the historical, the teams that are less successful are throwing more resources at it and the teams that are getting by with, with less don't feel the need to throw more resources at it. But, um, I mean, I, I haven't gone through all the positions, so it's hard to tell. But the interesting thing with quarterback, which was the first one I did, is that, that there was, I mean, there's big variation we know in how quarterbacks perform, but that really, uh, I mean, no matter, teams are all spending about the same amount of money unless you're dealing with the guy on his rookie contract. Everyone's in that, like, 15, 20, 22 million dollar range. Dave, when you look at this and see that everyone is in a tight range, do you think that's more a function of the salary cap structure or simply because there isn't enough talent in the league and so teams have to overpay for mediocre talent? Yeah, I think the the salary cap is one piece. I think your point about there, there just aren't enough uh, good quarterbacks to go around. Um, and then also the, the leverage the teams have is the franchise tag, and that acts as a limiting factor. I mean, who knows what Aaron Rodgers or Andrew Luck would make if they hit the free market, but they're not going to. Those teams are never going to let them do that. What do you have uh, coming up next on your docket? Are you going to be moving over to the defensive side of the ball? Are you doing wide receivers and tight ends? Where are you going from here? Uh, I think wide receivers and tight ends will be next, and that that should be interesting because we know that there are teams that throw uh, lots of high picks and lots of uh, money at that position. But uh, 
you know, and other teams that try to do it on the cheap. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that correlates to passing success. Have you done any studies on uh, on teams paying uh, kickers and punters significantly more than they're worth, and whether or not that has a general impact on team morale? Because I know that it's kind of like you know the saying, "Happy wife makes a happy life." I kind of say the same thing for a kicker or a punter. Oh, I'm I'm saving the specialist for last check. Don't worry, I'll uh, I'll make sure to uh, to get that on. Feel free to contact me if you want to do any research into that because I'm I'm more than happy to detail the spending habits of specialists because I think they'll surprise you. I mean, you talk about how a lot of athletes. I think it was eighty percent of NBA players are broke within five years. You don't even want to know what it looks like for specialists. Yeah, and and you know we're going to be doing that in uh, Kicker Awareness Week. We're going to set up a GoFundMe for uh, pensions for the uh, kickers and punters. So uh, that'll be a big announcement. I, I like where you're going, Dave, and uh, certainly it's a great series that you are putting together. And I do encourage everyone to check it out at InsideThePylon.com. We got to run, Dave, but thanks again. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. Dave Archibald from Inside the Pylon, and you can check that article out on Offensive Lineman Investment. It is up on our site, uh, effective immediately. And, Mark, when you look at this, I mean, you were were a quarterback, and you you had to play behind these offensive lines. And from your perspective, we've heard quite a bit in the last couple of years about, you know, obviously there's the movie The Blind Side, and we've seen the investment in left tackle. Let's talk a little bit about that right guard position. Did that seem to be anything important to you, or is that just something that doesn't quite compute? <laughs> I mean, it, it computes from uh, an offensive scheme standpoint in the sense that the right guard is typically your premier run blocker. Okay. Um, somebody that's going to pull a lot in the run game, somebody that you know works you know, you know, hand in hand with the center. Oftentimes it's the center and the right guard that make line protection calls up front, read the defensive front, call out slide protection, call out, you know, combo blocks in the run game. So it doesn't really surprise me. I think what, you know, the main takeaway is, you know, and this is kind of a, a feeling that we're getting now, Dave's done three of these, is that, you know, the teams that are forced into situations where they have to address problems, like Dave talked about, they're not getting the value on the, the return on their investment that you'd like to see. They're spending high draft picks, they're spending dollars on these positions, and they're not getting the return that you'd like to see. Now, trying to dig into that further, I don't know if it's a function of just these teams aren't using the right schemes for these players, or... There shows the flaws in the draft evaluation process where you're taking a guy higher in the draft and you might be a little bit unsure of him. Or if it's just the way that some of these other teams, they can bring in players at lower dollars later in the draft and have them buy into a system or a scheme. So it's a really interesting series that he's putting together. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been very good to watch, and I'm definitely interested to see where it goes, especially as we get onto the defensive side of the ball too. Right. Um, we've got about five minutes left here. Figure it makes some sense to uh, turn and look at the upcoming slate of games. Much better slate than we saw in the previous week in particular. The highlight for me is that Denver-Green Bay game. Uh, I, I really am interested to see how Denver performs against really against an offense that I think can match it punch for punch and to see if Peyton Manning recovers after the bye week and starts to get himself back on track. Right, and I think we can make our first ever Inside the Pylon podcast bold prediction, that is an undefeated team is going to lose this week. Are you, are you sure? We, we could have a tie, Mark. 
I'm no, I'm locking this down. <laughs> Bold prediction time. All I'm right. the master of lukewarm takes, and here's my first. A team will lose in this game. Mark, <laughs> will you give me five to one odds that it's a tie? Done. All right, we'll, we'll have to check in on that this week. What are you expecting to see scheme-wise from these two teams here? Well, I'm really interested in the matchup between the Denver defense and Aaron Rodgers in this Packers offense. And I think it kind of sets up to be a tough matchup for Denver. They like to bring pressure, play man coverage. But Aaron Rodgers is so great at getting that ball out so quickly. He can neutralize the pressure schemes of Denver, maybe find some open opportunities in the secondary against man coverage. I think that sets up to be a tough task for this Denver defense. Now, what are you expecting with Peyton Manning in this offense? Well, it's interesting because you know I had said a couple minutes ago, I said, well, can anyone keep up with that Peyton Manning offense? And then all of a sudden I'm sitting there saying, Right. Well, that Peyton Manning offense hasn't been that great. It's it's been it's been good this year, but right. Peyton Manning. We talked a couple weeks ago. Not, not exactly the Peyton Manning that we're used to seeing. And I'm I'm curious to see if he's able to get himself back to where he needs to be. And in particular, we've talked a lot about how he's had to make some adjustments, and how even Gary Kubiak has had to make some adjustments with the offense this year in order to try to get him into a comfort zone. And I wonder if with the bye week, a little bit more time to work things out, if we see a different Peyton Manning. Because the last time we really saw him the, the way that we, we expect to see him was back in that game against Detroit, which was at the end of September. And he went 31 of 42 for 324 yards, two TDs, one pick. And since then, four picks and one TD in his last two games. And, and, you know, really just not looking the way that you expect. So I'm curious to see if they make any adjustments on the offensive side of the ball to make him a little bit more comfortable. And, and that's really because you know you're going to get into a shootout with the Packers. We talk about how the, 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 the Broncos have a good defense, but we know the Packers can score points on anyone. Right. They've proved it time and time again. So right. that Denver offense is going to have to keep up. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, you know, it, like, you, like you said, it'll be interested. It's, you know, Sunday night marquee matchup. It's in Denver. Uh, Packers fans travel well, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on, on Sunday night. Yeah, the, the other big one uh, coming up this week, and, and maybe it's not quite as big as, uh, as this game, is the matchup between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, right. and this is a game that I think if Cincinnati comes out and plays the way that they're capable of playing, if, if they're able to come out and take care of business here, it really solidifies that the AFC North really runs through them at this point. And more importantly, I think if, if they can go and take care of business against the Steelers and, and come out with a convincing win, I think they're probably the biggest threat to the New England Patriots in the AFC then. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm interested to see what the Steelers try to do here defensively. We've seen Cincinnati this year. Dave Archibald had a great article on Inside the Pylon about uh, offensive coordinator Hugh Jackson and what he's doing on the opening drives of games, showing yeah. defenses different looks. That was a great piece. They've also had success attacking single high coverage, cover one, cover three, which is something the Steelers and most teams employ. I'm curious to see if Pittsburgh comes out, maybe shows a little cover two, cover four, try to neutralize A.J. Green a bit and show Andy Dalton something that he might not have seen so much this year, maybe give them a little bit of a different look to try to get some confusion on the offensive side of the ball in Cincinnati. Now, on the other side of the ball, we are expected to see Ben Roethlisberger back in, uh, in, in a uniform and on the field this week after missing several weeks here. 
What what do you look for from Roethlisberger? He's a guy who what, one of the attributes that really I, I think makes him stand out is his strength and toughness in the pocket. And for me at least, I'm going to be looking just to see if he has his legs under him and if he, if he has that strength to really continue to elongate plays even when he has dr- defenders draped you know all over him. Right, and that's one of the you know elite traits of Ben Roethlisberger as a quarterback is his play strength. It's you know often you think of evaluating core traits for a quarterback. You don't think strength is one of them. You think arm talent, athletic ability, decision making. But he's got that ability to stay upright. Defenders draped all over him. Extend plays. He can mask problems up front by simply being able to shake defenders off of him. So if you've got a free rusher or a blitz that's missed by the offensive line, he can mask that deficiency by simply shrugging off tackle or shrugging off sacks. But if he doesn't have his legs under him, you know, he's, you know, been out for a couple of weeks now with that injury, you know, maybe he's not quite ready to bring that element to the Pittsburgh offense. Very good. Well, Mark, the unfortunate news is that we are out of time for the week, my friend. That is sad news, but, you know, I've got some Adele to cheer me up and keep me rolling until next week. You listen to your Adele. I will continue to listen to Silence. For everyone who has been listening, we certainly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at ITPylon. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash InsideThePylon. And as always, make sure you check out our site at InsideThePylon.com. Mark and I will be back next week with all the Week 8 action. Signing off, Chuck Zada, Mark Schofield from Inside the Pylon.